Ukraine Calling. Hello and welcome to Ukraine Calling, the English language podcast from Hromatsky Radio in Kyiv. I am Oleg Klimchuk and I'll be talking to Harulf, who is a Canadian, a soldier and the commander of the Norman Brigade. And he is going to tell us why he and his guys have been fighting with the Russian aggressors in Ukraine since 2017, what drives him most in this war and how Harulf's perception of Ukrainians has been changing. Ukraine calling. Bonjour, Harulf. Ça va? Bonjour, Alex. Ça va bien, merci. Harulf, since when have you been in Ukraine? Mm, I started to get involved in 2017. So at the time, I remember we met uh, because you were our point of contact. So the goal was basically to to uh, to have an idea of what was going on in Ukraine. So 2017, I remember uh, we we had a common friend that was serving with me in the French Foreign Legion, if you remember well. And uh, I saw a lot of Ukrainians come into to the French Foreign Legion, and I had a, a, a lot of recruits under my orders that were talking about a war. So I traveled here, and I, I just wanted to help. Most, most uh, like My intentions were, were to help, but also to understand this conflict, the roots of the conflict in general. So yeah, 2017 would be my first interaction here in Ukraine. Why did you decide to fight against Russian intruders? What does drive you most in your motivation? So, at the time, back in 2017, I just wanted to understand and also to get involved uh, for justice. Things have changed since 2017, and I became a father. So, basically, I'm, I'm fighting for my daughter. She's my sole motivation, but also for friends. I learned to, to know people. I've made friends here. Some of them became brothers. Yeah, it's literally for family, love, and, and justice, basically. It's the most corny, it's the cheesiest reasons, but this is what it is. Harulf, are you a fighter of the International Brigade, or it is correct to say that you are a fighter of the Norman Brigade? Yes, I am the commander of this uh, unit. May you tell, please, what ideas stood behind its creation and about the origin of its name? So, originally, we were just a bunch of... Canadian of Norman ancestry. So, so back in the days, I would say in, in 1500s and 1600s, settlers left uh, the Duchy of Normandy to settle in, in what was at the time New France. So remember, France is a confederation of small little countries, you know, Aquitaine, Bri uh, Brittany, and, and Normandy, for instance. So the settlers obviously settled in Canada. And the Normans, we always had a tumultuous relationship, I would say, with, with history. So we had been, uh, we've been those kind of people who wouldn't understand their story, where they come from. And we were conscious about the military legacy and the type of combativity we were transposing on the battlefield. It's something that we have in us, and this is something we're proud of. So the name would come from this. Like the original founders were just Canadians of Norman ancestry. Now, why we decided to start this unit? Originally, we, we, we were kind of neutral. So back in 2019... We didn't have the whole understanding of really what was going on because of Russia and their propaganda. They were very efficient at pushing false narratives. They were very efficient at shuffling the cards, uh, basically. So what we tried to do is we just wanted to create a peacekeeping force that would go on the front line 
and that would help the populations on both sides of the front line. And we were always about peace, but we knew that we would have to carry weapons because the Russians obviously cannot, you cannot count on their words. And at the time, we were conscious about this. And uh, yeah, it started as a humanitarian initiative, but we never got activated. We never deployed as a humanitarian force or a peacekeeping force. First, for lack of political support, <laughs> and uh, secondly, for uh, for lack of resource. Some people in Ukraine understood what we were trying to do, but we were probably the only ones who didn't know how useless it was going to be. One more question about the Norman Brigade. Your first soldiers were from Quebec. Does it mean you accept Quebec as mainly Normans? No. The Normans, we have an history of, of being very inclusive. When it started, we were just a bunch of Normans very motivated, but it changed. It, it took an international shape with time, right? And I remember when the full-scale invasion started, I have a, a an acquaintance that was living in Donetsk Oblast. And uh, he told me, hey, be careful because your your daughter will become Russian soon. And it kind of hit me in the feels. I, I didn't want her to become a slave. I didn't want her to become a slave. Uh, I'm sorry, lapsus. And uh, what I did is, is I called a kind of a gathering council. And I said, okay, guys, this is the situation. Do you vote for activating Norman Brigade as a combat unit and 100% of us uh, voted to be uh, a combat unit. So what I did is uh, uh, I prepared different things and different equipment in Europe. And then uh, we made our way uh, to Ukraine. And uh, this is where the story starts. As I said, we we never deployed in a humanitarian format. Uh-huh. When, when we deployed on the battlefield as a combat unit, one of our first operations was in Zaporozhye Oblast, Zaporizhia Oblast. We stormed Novoslatopil, which is close to Uspenivka, Malinivka. And we tagged along the 81st Air Mobile Assault Brigade. They invited us to to join them, but the original unit we joined was Ukrainska Dobrovolcha Army, which is UDA, and and yeah, we were just doing freedom fighting, not getting paid without really uh, any contract binding us uh, to anything. But we we had to follow the the rules uh, of war, obviously, and we were taking legitimate orders from ZSU officers and and our commanders to carry on task and and. To kill uh, the invader. Harulf, how would you describe the attitude towards you from Ukrainian soldiers and officers? Has it changed since 2017? Look, I in 2017, I believe they were very skeptical because if you don't have roots in, in, in this country, how can you be really determined determined to, to, to fight, mm-hmm. right? So there was, I think, a little bit of, not even suspicion, just just... Like is like do you have what, what it takes curiosity? Do you have what it takes to to do the job right? And then uh, when we came in 2022, everybody was like, "You guys are crazy." 
And everybody ran for Kiev. And us, we just ran for Dnipro because we knew the fight would be in the East, like the most important fight. You know, Kiev, 900,000 people, they were, they were giving, they were giving guns and uh, guns and equipment like it was, uh, I don't know, some, some free meals or something. I don't know how to put that together. So yeah, we ran for Dnipro. We met with the uh, people that, that was part of the, the operational command there. And we were welcomed. I, I think it was a moral booster. Like, and and this is because everybody was just running to save Kiev. Nobody was going in east, and we were the first one to just be like, "Okay, f this thing, and let's go." We go. Do you remember the words the Ukrainians told you when you liberated cities and villages? How did they accept you? Were they puzzled when you spoke French or English? When we stormed the Novoslotopil. I was communicating, most of the Ukrainians I was communicating with, it was by hand signs with the other soldiers. The officers knew how to speak English. And then when I met the civilian population, they saw my flag because I was wearing a Canadian flag, this Canadian flag that you see here. And I, I did not talk to anybody because and the Canadian soldiers and, and most of NATO soldiers, usually we, we're, we're not really encouraged to speak with the local population either you know someone could slip with informations or anything and i really i didn't want to endanger more this ukrainian unit because we had to go back to uh, our staging area and and our positions and if the russians would get the informations that a they they have like canadians there and everything maybe they would have deployed more capabilities so This is this was my trail of thought. And then this lady, I remember this lady, and, and she told me in a broken English, what are you doing here? And she made like the sign of cross and she offered me water and she was crying. She was like, thank you, you know. Where was it? Novosatov. Ukraine calling. You're listening to Ukraine Calling, the English language podcast on Hromatsky Radio in Kiev. I'm Oleg Klimchuk, and I'm talking to Harulf, a Canadian volunteer fighting with his comrades for Ukraine. Harulf, you are in war for nearly five years. On and off, because I had responsibilities in uh, other countries. Uh, I was a service member, obviously, of, a, of another type of army. And then, yeah, when I came here to Ukraine in 2002, I, 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 I didn't leave. I, I, I've been uh, involved in the, in the fight, in making sure that I take care of politics when it comes to being able to deploy Norman Brigade with a Ukrainian unit because we cannot do whatever we want in this country. There are laws, there are a format, operational format that you must follow, and you must take legitimate orders from the Ukrainian uh, chain of command. So it's always a little bit of, of politics, but I, I think I got better <laughs> with this, with time, because honestly, I'm not, I'm not a guy who's going to talk much uh, or try to, to influence events, events basically to, to, to achieve something. It's more like, okay, we are here to fight and let's go. If you want, you want, if you don't want, we move somewhere else. And this is basically uh, the situation uh, that had been going on with some uh, other foreign teams. It's a reality. It's not, it's no big deal. We'll always find a home uh, at the end of the day. Has the Norman Brigade become an integral part of the army forces of Ukraine? We did at one point. 
And uh, after some inconsistencies with the paperwork, so so this was due to lack of under, understanding on a legal format. It was a new thing for the Ukrainians because previously we were the foreigners were encouraged to join the International Legion, what they call the Gore Legion. So it's 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 like another foreign branch ran by the main intelligence directorate of Ukraine. And they had, they were us, uh, Norman Gregory, who was part of UDA, Ukrainska Dobrovolcha Army. And we were kind of an, an anomaly in the system because we didn't want to be under contract. We were not getting paid for this. We were just there, you know, to fight for freedom. Were there attempts to push you on to a union with the International Brigade? We were encouraged to just join a, a regular uh, Ukrainian brigade. Not not the International Legion, not the Gore Legion. We had a couple offers, but it didn't really fit the type of uh, doctrinal approach that we wanted to bring on the battlefield. So I would say December 2022, this is when we signed our first contract in Odessa. And uh, yeah, I think there was just a lack of understanding of, of what could be next. I think it was their first time that they were handling such a high number of foreigners. Usually the Ukrainians, they like to send like 10-15 guys in this unit, 10-15 guys in the other unit. I think it mitigates the liability. Like if if a whole group of foreigner, for instance, due to language barrier, make a mistake on the battlefield, It's less worse to lose 10-15 guys than to lose 150 guys for language barrier mistake, for instance. Has it been long before you get used to the Soviet-style weaponry and ammunition? So when we talk about the weapons platform, no, not, re not really. Especially for the Americans, because they have the AK platform, uh, you know, there's always some... It was like one of the most exportable weapon at the time, I think. So some people knew, but we had to go through a refresh. There were other Soviet platforms that we didn't really know. But it, it all comes down to the same thing and effect, basically. So it didn't take quite a long time. There were more technical things, technical weapon system like the uh, AGS, for, for instance. But other than that, it was pretty straightforward, really. Does the brigade consist of infantry mainly? Yes. Now, I want to clarify. When people say brigade, we're not the size of a brigade. I see. Okay. It's the name of the unit, Normanska Brigada. But when you look at the military culture in the world, you know, if you go on the, the, the Spanish-speaking side, a brigada can be a, a, a small unit, heavily armed, you know, 25-30 people. But also, we thought that it could be a long war. And we're like, okay, we, we can preemptively nor, like name this Norman Brigade as, as Norman Brigade, but we just wanted uh, to have the same capabilities concentrated in a smaller force, you know, like uh, artillery, mortar, uh, vehicles, uh, armor support and everything. It's possible to have such task force with everything you would find in a brigade, but on a smaller scale. And also we thought that it was a brotherhood and people would come and go. And maybe in five years, it, I, I hope this war will not take five, five more years. But if it does, maybe this brotherhood will get the size of a brigade if God wills it. But, you know. What have you learned from Ukrainians and what have you taught them during this time? So we, we have different approach. Okay, The Ukrainians, they fight for their land. They fight. Like, like, this is the thing. So I can understand them because I, I have roots and strong roots in this country, a strong reason to fight. So the Ukrainians, they, they have this, this crazy 
courage that most of foreigners would think it's it's almost like suicidal basically but if you understand the roots of this conflict you understand why they 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 have this mindset of it's all or nothing it's it's uh, you know th- this is what we saw like the sheer courage the sheer determination to the point where it 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 was getting sometimes a little bit suicidal as i said now when us we came we we tried to adapt to different style of, of of warfare because you would have the conventional warfare, you would have guerrilla warfare, and there are there is always this combined armed aspect where you use different capabilities to achieve your your goal. And the Ukrainians, uh, because of the high stake of mobilization, didn't have time to 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 train and prepare such professionals in in a very efficient ma- manner right so at first it was very chaotic so so we saw them mastering this chaos the best they could but uh, what we teach them was how to use the new weapon systems uh, you know like enlar javelins and you were able to use it already weren't you so we were already used to it because our doctrine was based uh, on these uh, weapons plat- uh, weapons platform also some tactical you know uh, things when it comes to uh, to conduct some operations i'm not saying we were better or less better than them we just have a different approach a different uh, mindset now i met two different type of officers you have the new school officers who had been in contact with the nato you mean from the ukrainian side yeah yeah from the ukrainian side mm-hmm. who had been in contact with the nato education that they had that back in the days in yavoriv yeah, yeah, 2014 15 etc cetera, etc cetera. and you had also the hard line <laughs> officers that came from the soviet background who were either trying to open their mind to it or there was just like okay no i have a mission to do this is the resource that i have and i can only answer to orders and and respect them and and they didn't have this this open mindset flexibility type of thing things are starting to change but we are losing our best this is what ukraine also must realize we are losing very very good people we like the west should start pulling their fingers out of their nose and start giving us what we need more than just a few things there and there now this is very important we 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 could talk a lot about this how discontent i am with the support that the west is is giving or not giving but they should stop thinking about escalation and oh there's a risk of escalation things already escalated in 2014 if people don't see it now there's a there is a problem and this is where the russian propaganda comes into play how they have been poisoning the the perception of 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 good people who probably think that they should come first before helping ukraine for instance if if we lose here it's done like it's 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 going to be a terrible terrible era for the world if Russia succeeds uh, in Ukraine. So please contact your your local politicians and uh, tell them to send whatever they can at, at as fast as possible. We must win this. Ukraine calling. You're listening to Ukraine calling, the English language podcast on Hromadsky Radio in Kyiv. I am Oleg Klimchuk and I'm talking to Harulf, a Canadian volunteer fighting with his comrades for Ukraine. About those guys and girls willing to join the Nomad Brigade, how can they find you and how do you find them? 
So there are two ways. Uh, we have the the local way, <laughs> I would say, where um, people know some people that used to or are serving with us. So they take contact with us. They 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 show a proof of of identity, a proof of service, and and uh, we can take it from there. Now the the main, I would say, uh, recruitment channel is uh, they can find us on Facebook. You know, we have uh, an admin there. The, so we have an admin there that takes the the the, the information. Well, the initial information is if they have a, a military experience, if if you know what specialty they have, and then uh, we move to a secure uh, channel where they can uh, put their uh, uh, their information. So uh, now, right now. It's it's a good time because we are moving under contract. We we because we've been moving from uh, uh, you know being contracted to going back to the and now we've been contracted again. So uh, it is paid. This is a, a, a you know the, the the same pay rate I would say as any frontline fighters. We have a, a nice support. We have a nice operational format, and we're we're still looking for good uh, professionals who are willing to fight. Uh, we are w- willing to develop new ideas because this is what we're looking for, like uh, good talents. Uh, because you know war, it's an art. This is what people have to remember. It's it's not only a, a butchery. So this is what it is. We're looking for artists. Did you think over the brigade's future? How do you say its prospects? It will depend on what the Ukrainians want. We will adapt. Obviously, I would like it to be a permanent uh, model of foreign integration into the military armed forces. I think it's ambitious, but at the same time, it's not too far-fetched. Obviously, with with my experience with international soldiers while I was serving in the international, uh, sorry, French Foreign Legion, there is a format of integration that has been proven to work. And if we adapt it only to Ukrainian integration for foreigners, it's it's totally doable, and we can achieve a high level of professionalism if we take the time to implement this kind of system. So this is what I see, very uh, in an elite and efficient force that will be able to to assist Ukraine uh, uh, for the next decades. Because I will not be here forever, right? So I think someone at one point will continue this legacy, uh, the legacy of, of, of the Normans, right? I see a medal on your uniform. Will you tell what is it for? It's uh, the medal Brother to Brother. It was, it was uh, created uh, by... I would say a joint uh, joint fund foundations of of, of volunteers and uh, Prikarpatia uh, Defense Headquarters uh, were are related in uh, to Azov, and also uh, I'm not sure if they are still related to them, but Una Unso, because when they created this medal, it was uh, supported, uh, I would say, carried by the uh, foreign fighters of Azov, so. The first foreign fighters to receive this medal was in 2016 for what they had done in 2015. And they were from the Azov uh, regiment, uh, Azov unit back in the days. And uh, the those people, uh, especially Irina Forostian, who is the uh, co-initiator of this medal, started to uh, to award this again in 2023. So as far as I know, 
people in the French, uh, no, sorry, in the International Legion, some of them received it. We are about 200 people who received this medal. I suppose some soldiers from the Norman Brigade were awarded with it too. So some of our fathers have received it. And uh, I had also uh, decided to, with also with recommendation, to award uh, a few Ukrainians who had been supporting us for quite a long time. And, and they had been sacrificing uh, their own comfort uh, to make sure that when we came, we had like a roof over our heads or they were uh, uh, supporting us on the battlefield. Uh, they fought with us, alongside us. Uh, so a few fighters from the uh, battalion uh, Volin, uh, from Udea, received it. One member of the Ukrainian resistance uh, from Lviv also received it. And uh, we awarded also um, two hospitaliers also who, who have received it. So yeah, I, it, it's 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 for sacrifice. Uh, a lot of a lot of us have sacrificed, you know, family, even our lives. When we talk about uh, uh, posthumously, we talk about uh, Joshua Jones and, and Clayton Hightower. Uh, they were awarded uh, this medal also for sacrifice. Uh, they lost their lives while being uh, uh, serving uh, with the International Legion, but they were they were still Normans. They, they, this is the the aspect of the Norman Brigade. It's a brotherhood. If if you earn the right to be part of this brotherhood, you know it's for life. Your brigade and you as its commander had suffered losses. Did you talk with the relatives of the deceased? Do they ask you if it was worth losing life in Ukraine? Or the relatives of the fallen soldiers do not put questions like this? <sighs> so I've talked with the family of Clayton and, and uh, Joshua. And I'm, I'm not even sure how to put that in word because it's still hard. I remember Joshua's mother, she was so heartbroken. She had lost her baby. She she, she was very, look, she's a mother. She, she, she had very harsh word in general for this war. Josh's dad was more, he understood, he's a, he's American patriot. He understood, he came, he, come, he came from a military background. And he said, boys, you're doing the right thing. Never stop. Don't, don't stop what you're doing. Clayton Hightower uh, family. It was also like this. We had heartbroken people who were cursing the whole world for their loss. And, and I, 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 I sympathize with them. I understand. And you had also other members. They, they just said, look, don't stop. We, we, we have to win. We have to win. This is, this is a fight for, for the free world. Uh, so this is the kind of conversation that I had with the family, to put it simply. What do your Canadian relatives tell you? Do you communicate? Uh, come back. I'm not. Well, not until, not until we win uh, or we die. It's, it's, it's simple. You have listened to Ukraine Calling, the English-language podcast on Hromadsky Radio in Kiev. I, Ole Klimchuk, talked to Harulf, a Canadian volunteer fighting for Ukraine. He and his comrades didn't understand this war with Russia at first, as Moscow juggled truth and facts. However, they soon realized that if Ukraine loses this war, democracy will face dark days. You can find more English-language podcasts from Hromadsky Radio in Kyiv on our website, hromadsky.radio. Ukraine calling.